His name was Biscuits, and he always wore a starched white apron and a tall chef's hat, boots, and little else. The skeleton of a great lion. Hurry, cried the second. We must fly there onto my magic carpet. We love stories! It's time for the apple seat, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. A pleasure every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And we've got a great batch of stories this hour. You're going to hear a story from the great musical storyteller Odds Bodkin called The Lion Makers. You won't want to miss that. And you won't want to miss the tender song by songwriter and storyteller Susan Reed about Grandpa. And you'll hear a story from Richard Martin called The Silent Princess about a princess who never speaks. You're going to get to see if the young hero of the story wins her hand in the end. In the meantime, here's a story from Texas storyteller Sheila Starks Phillips. It's a story called Prairie Dog Roundup, and we're happy to begin our hour together with this tale. The year was 1954. I was in my second year of college at the University of Manitoba when I received a telephone call late one night from my daddy. He said I needed to come home immediately to help my Uncle Charlie Ralph out with the spring roundup. I hung up that phone. I knew the importance of the spring roundup. I didn't hesitate. I went back to my dorm room and I packed a few things and asked my roommate to notify my professors I'd be out for the next few weeks and I caught the next plane home for Amarillo, Texas. As soon as I got there, I went to the house and straight out to the barn and got my pony, old paint. Went in the house and grabbed a clean pair of blue jeans, a change of underwear, and plenty of trail mix. Hopped on my bicycle and rode furiously out to my Uncle Charlie Ralph's ranch headquarters. Now, Uncle Charlie Ralph had a modest spread by Texas standards, about 50,000 acres. Oh, he grew wheat and cotton, corn as high as an elephant's eye. He had a sprinkling of cattle, but the real money was in his prime herd of prairie dogs. He was the biggest distributor and producer of prairie dogs in the entire nation, if not the world. When I got out to the ranch, things were popping. Dog boys were coming in from everywhere. They were walking, they were riding bicycles, they were on their horses. They were coming in from all over. I saw a bunch that I'd known from previous trail rides. First thing I did was go over to the chuck wagon and say hello to the cook. A crusty old man who'd worked for my Uncle Charlie Ralph, well, for as long as I could remember. His name was Biscuits, and he always wore a starched white apron and a tall chef's hat, boots, and little else. They were stocking up that chuck wagon with about a hundred cases of refried beans and an equal number of Betty Crocker's sourdough biscuit mix. We had a good visit, and then I checked in at the headquarters and found my place in the bunkhouse, stowed my gear, and I went around and said hello to some of the other dog boys. The next morning, we were rousted out early. We saddled our horses, packed up our gear, and we were ready to roll, just waiting for my Uncle Charlie Ralph to say, Round them up and move them out. Now, rounding up prairie dogs is not such an easy task. Prairie dogs, as we all know, burr under the ground, but most of us don't realize what late sleepers prairie dogs are. 
So we had a heck of a time rousting them out. We finally put fire hoses down the entrances to their burrows and flushed those little buggers out. They came out by the thousands, shaking the water off their fur, rubbing the sleep out of their eyes. Counting them was equally hard, because prairie dogs are not wont to stand still. Finally, we had the count made, the corral gates were open, and we moved them out, leaving behind only those who had been trained as post-hole diggers. The first two hours on the trail were uneventful, but then came the first big challenge. We had to take those prairie dogs, swim them across the Gulf of Amarillo to reach El Paso on the other side. We did it a hundred animals at a time. Biscuits drove the chuck wagon into the surf. He had a couple of helpers on the back throwing out pellets made of alfalfa and gummy bears. Now that's a sure way to get a prairie dog to follow you. We dog boys stationed ourselves out in the water ready to pluck any little waterlogged animal from the water. It was a tough day, a hard day, a dirty day. We'd take a hundred across, the chuck wagon would turn around and go back for the next hundred. took us all day long, but just at nightfall we got the last of them across. Sadly, not all of them got across. We took a count and we had lost 1,016 prairie dogs just swept out to sea. We were feeling a little down and out in the mouth that night. Had a big old plate of biscuits and beans, and, and then, well, somebody brought out a guitar, and one of the other dog boys remembered he had an accordion in his saddlebags, and, and someone else, another dog boy, found a harmonica in his pocket, and the picking and singing began. I'm an old dog hand from the Texas pan handle. My legs are bowed and my cheeks are tan. I'm a dog boy, what never saw a cow. I never roped a steer cause I don't know how. But I can ride herd on the prairie dog. Yo! Yippee ki o ki Yip, yip, yip. Yippee ki o ki Yip, yip, yip. Yippee ki o ki well, you know, that picking and singing went on into the wee hours of the morning, and finally we threw our bedrolls down on that cold, hard ground and went to sleep, counting the shooting stars in that perfect Texas sky. Now, the next morning, we were up early again. We had to go through the mountains of New Mexico that day. We had no fire hoses, so we we formed a human chain from the campsite down to a nearby creek, and we passed buckets of ice-cold creek water hand-to-hand and sloshed it down those prairie dog holes, getting them up. It was going to be a dangerous day, so we strapped on our sidearms. You see, those mountains in New Mexico are full of poachers. In some cultures, the gizzard of a prairie dog is considered an aphrodisiac. And those poachers would jump out behind every pine tree, every mesquite bush, and they'd grab our little critters and they'd just remove the the gizzard and throw the carcasses out on the trail to be devoured by carrying, eating animals that roam those mountains. Oh, in spite of our vigilance, by the end of the day when we took account, Lord of mercy, we'd lost a thousand sixteen animals. There was no picking and singing that night. We were just too downhearted. Now, the next day, we were up early again, had to cross those desert, that hot desert country of Arizona. Some of the longer-haired animals, we shaved them right down to the skin just so they could get a breeze. 
It was not unusual that day to see a dog boy with 10, 15, maybe even 20 prairie dogs draped across his saddle or across the neck of his horse, just giving him a ride, a little respite from the heat. At the end of the day, we camped right outside of Phoenix. Somebody drove into town and and brought back a whole pickup truck full of bluebell ice cream. We walked around and put scoops of that wonderful bluebell ice cream down those prairie dog holes. It gave them such a relief, those little critters. Now, the next morning, we hit the trail early. We made our way to the east side of San Diego, where a police escort was waiting for us. Now, it was no trouble to keep the prairie dogs in line that day. Those sirens were blaring, those lights were flashing, so most of those little PDs, as we sometimes called them, wanted to walk right beneath the horses. We got through town all right, and when we reached the west side of town, our police escort left us. But that was all right. We headed on down Highway 1. We were making pretty good time. Now, the traffic on the other side of the highway was practically at a standstill. It was like a long line of looky-loos hanging out their windows, jeering us, making obscene signs, or cheering us on, depending on their position regarding animal rights. Well, it was important for us to reach the zoo before 10 o'clock when the zoo opened. We missed that deadline one year, and, well, the children were arriving at the zoo, and they all began to chase the prey dogs, and we had real pandemonium going on. We began to hurry up the prey dogs, Come on here, you dogs. Get it going. Yeah, yeah. We were making real good time when all of a sudden I looked ahead and the gates of the zoo were opening. And out of the gates came eight African elephants, the entire collection of the San Diego Zoo with all of their keepers. I looked at my watch. I said, oh, my gosh, Uncle Charlie Ralph has forgotten. It's Tuesday. That's the day the elephants are all taken down to the local car wash for their weekly bath. Well, when the elephants saw the prairie dogs, they began to run toward us, trumpeting wildly. We had an all-out stampede on our hands. In spite of our best efforts to keep the PDs under control, hundreds, maybe even thousands, crossed the Mexican border with the border patrol guards blowing their whistles, trying to get them back in. Hundreds and thousands more went right into the surf, trying to swim their way to Catalina Island. Some of them ran on the other side of the freeway and sadly got smushed flat, and still others, we heard later, got stuck in the La Brea tar pits. Well, we were so discouraged, I was so down, I walked right into the zoo, gave my pony old paint to the petting zoo. Then I said goodbye to my Uncle Charlie Ralph and the other dog boys I'd grown so fond of, and then I headed, headed north to Hollywood make my way in showbiz, but, you know, that's another story. But sometimes late at night on the set, I'd be sitting under a palm tree behind my trailer, and I'd be thinking about those good old days on the trail, and pretty soon I'd catch myself humming that tune. <laughs> and then I'd be singing right out loud, I'm an old dog hand. From the Texas pan handle, my legs aren't bowed and my face are tan. I'm a dog boy, what never saw a cow, why never roped a steer, cause I don't know how. But I can ride herd on the prairie dogs, yo! Yippee ki yo ki yip, 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 yippee ki yo And that's a true story. <laughs> 
Sheila Starks Phillips with Prairie Dog Roundup here on the Apple Seed. Sheila has to tell you at the end of that story that it's a true story. Otherwise, you might believe that it's like a lot of the tall tales that Sheila Starks Phillips tells. Coming up, you're going to hear a story called The Silent Princess from Richard Martin and a lot more here on the Apple Seed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. Such pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. And, uh, of course, if you're just joining us, uh, a moment ago we brought you Prairie Dog Roundup, a story by Texas storyteller Sheila Starks Phillips. And if you missed that story or want to hear it again, you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, an archive there filled with episodes of the show and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story called The Silent Princess in a little bit. But first, uh, a memory. You know, we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. This one is about a trip to Bulgaria and a visit to an orphanage. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Some years ago, I had the chance to go to Bulgaria to do some humanitarian work. I was invited, actually, to perform a series of concerts as benefit shows for Bulgarian orphans. Bulgaria, as it turns out, has the highest orphan rate in all of Europe, and only 50% of those orphans live past the age of 20. And getting an up-close look at these kids and the people who care for them really changed my life. And it didn't just change my life. I had brought my 15-year-old son with me to Bulgaria, and watching him interact with the kids we met, well, it was something. The trip took place years ago, but memories from the trip come back to me from time to time, take over, really, like memories do, arrest me when I least expect it. I remember one of the days of the trip, a windy, cold day. We visited an orphanage, as we did on most days of the trip, This was a big, gray, concrete building in the heart of Sofia, the capital city of Bulgaria. Our host was there to talk with the orphanage staff. The rest of us just hung out for a while with the orphans, mostly teenagers who'd been in the orphanage system until their 18th birthday would be. And there we met Sneshka, a young girl enchanted by foreign visitors. Sneshka was about 14. She was friendly and smart, and when she saw that we had a photographer with us, she wanted her photo taken. We snapped her picture, and she hurried over to the photographer. She wanted to see the photo on the camera screen. And when she saw it, she tapped on the back of the camera and said something urgent in Bulgarian. Again and again, she said it. We asked our interpreter what it was Sneshka was saying. The translation gave us pause. Don't erase me, the girl was saying. Don't erase me, over and over. Don't erase me. Snezhka didn't have a camera herself. She didn't have a computer screen on which to view pictures. There was no easy way for us to share those photos with her. But in a world that had, in a lot of ways, cast her off, Snezhka just wanted someone, somewhere, to look at a picture of her every once in a while and think fondly on her. Well, I've got the photo of her. It's among my favorite photos from the trip. 
She's standing in the hallway of her orphanage, that crumbling gray concrete building. My son is standing next to her. He's a grown-up now, and he still talks about that trip, talks about Sneshka. We're all like Sneshka a little bit. We all need to know that somewhere there are those who will leave our pictures in their wallets, on their walls or on their screens, look at them from time to time, and think fondly on us. And though most of us feel alone sometimes, feel like no one remembers us or understands us, for most of us it's true, true to a greater extent perhaps than we even realize, someone, somewhere, won't erase us. As I say that, it's just possible that maybe you're thinking of someone, maybe at the thought of the person who would never erase you, a face or a name comes to mind. What if you gave them a call? Reaching out like that might contain the makings of the best story you'll hear all day or the best story you'll tell. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear a story from Odds Bodkin called The Lion Makers. You'll hear a story called The Silent Princess from Richard Martin. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through great songs, and of course the things we see on screen as well. And exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on the Appleseed. I'm joined in the studio by Ian Puentes, a member of our uh, BYU broadcasting family. In fact, we say that about a lot of people. It's a good, big family we've got. And what <laughs> member of the family would Ian Puente be? The eccentric uncle? The dad? I'll take eccentric, eccentric <laughs> uncle, for sure. <laughs> and, of course, there is almost no one more fun than Ian Puente in terms of talking about movies around the water cooler. Ian Puente, it's great to have you with us on the Well, Apple thanks Street. for having me. It's exciting to have a an official opportunity to talk about movies. And you can hear the roar of engines in the background, <laughs> can't you, as we begin to talk about the movie we're going to talk about today. This I can always movie. hear the roar of engines That's in the background. <laughs> so. you got to have that checked out. Yes, yeah, probably should. Probably should. <laughs> but you and I have both seen the movie that we're talking about today, and this is Ford v. Ferrari. Yes, yeah. Ford v. Ferrari. Absolutely loved it. Loved it so much, in fact, that I then took my four sons back to the movie theater to watch it together. That's kind of the mark, isn't it? You go see a film and then you, you're you just burning to take somebody that you like to it. Yeah, right? incredibly yeah. satisfying story, incredibly well put together. I, I think it just – it works pretty much on every level yeah. of the film. And well, I've heard, set it up for us. Ford v. Sure. Ferrari, Christian Bale, Matt Damon. What's John Bernthal as yeah. well, The Punisher. Um, <laughs> You know, the movie is about – it's based on a true story. Yeah. It's set in the 1960s. Essentially, Ford had a botched potential takeover of Ferrari. Yeah. And as a result of the – not only the injury of that of that failure but also the insult that Ferrari layered on top of it, basically threw down the gauntlet and said, I, we need to bury Ferrari. And so <laughs> they hired a pretty eccentric team led by Carroll Shelby. Yeah. To, Played in the film by Matt Damon. Exactly. And uh, – um, to to basically build a better car, a car that could beat them at Le Mans, which yeah. is sort of the crown jewel of uh, of of car racing and and the most exotic, elegant 
fashionable race yeah. in the world. And you also get a, a, a sense in the film for just how punishing a, a race like that. Yeah, can it's a be full weird. twenty-four yeah. hours. Um, it's not like NASCAR races where it's on a on a track on, built yeah. for racing. It's it's basically just side country roads cordoned off for this twenty-four hour race, and there's yeah. consistently rain, and you have to drive through the night, and it's incredibly grueling. Um, it, it stokes incredible passion on the parts of the people that are both building the cars and racing the cars. Yeah. And uh, it just makes for a really engaging movie. It's incredible. I, I, my family used to watch – now I'm going somewhere with this. But we used to watch Star Trek The Next Generation every Sunday night. I'm excited to hear how you connect these two. <laughs> and every – and 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 you know you watch Star Trek The Next Generation because it was – well, because it was Sunday school, you know, <laughs> all, these, all these moral questions being wrestled by the by the you know the, by by the folks in that in that series. And every once in a while, you just walked away from an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, thinking, "Listen, I just need to see a bunch of phasers," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you go and see, you know, Ford v Ferrari, and it's this incredibly compelling human story, right? I mean, it's got all of that, but on the other hand. It's it's a race car movie, right? And you you just get carried away by by the races. You yes, know? you you get all the Sunday school and all the phasers. <laughs> well, it's surprising that it was a, it is a movie that you kind of works as a race movie. Yeah. Um, I personally don't always love race movies. There yeah. tends to be way too much testosterone, even for a dude who it, it, could it, use a testosterone boost. It's every sure a world that I'm not a part of. No, right? I exactly. Mean, I, I come as a complete novice. I come as a guy that that likes the idea of driving a car fast, but <laughs> probably not the reality of driving right, a car fast. Yeah. But at its core, it's really about incredibly passionate, committed individuals yeah. who have a vision for what they want to accomplish and overcome massive odds, yeah. both internal and external obstacles to achieve something yeah. really singular. Yeah. Um, I think the postscript on the film indicates that that was that era was the last time the Amer Americans have won Le Mans uh, consistently. American car manufacturer. Has it's it's incredible. You know, we 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 went home from that film and and the mark for us of having sat through a successful film, right, is we go home and suddenly we're around the kitchen table on our phones right. looking up all of the aspects of the real story, you know. That's right. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of a mark for us. I was fascinated when you said, yeah, I went and saw this film and then I turned around and I took my kids to it. You yeah. Know? Which, of course, is another mark of having had a great experience at the movies. And I guess I'm wondering, is there – and maybe the answer to this is just because it was awesome, right? But but was there was there something about that film that made you say, I want my boys to see this? You know, it, was, there, was there an aspect that you can put your finger on that made you say, we're going to this film even though I just saw it? Absolutely. Because I just saw I it. I think there's something about the film, at least for me, that was really felt like it um, encouraged – I, I love stories about makers, yeah. like people that are really – and yes, obsession is a big part of it, but really committed to creating something, yeah. not just consuming something, not just not just taking in what's around them, but really trying to build on something and make something great. Yeah. And that's what this movie is at its core. And whether that's in car racing or filmmaking or you name it, yeah. there's just something really compelling about people that are – incredibly committed to their craft yeah. and totally passionate about achieving mastery over what they're what they're engaged in. 
Did your boys like it? They did. Obviously, the ending is a little melancholy. Um, <laughs> and so for them, there was a lot of conversation about that afterward. I don't yeah. want to spoil too much. Yeah. But, um, but yes, we had, a, we had some mixed feelings based on the ending of the film. Feelings worth talking about, though, Absolutely. Right? Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Ford v. Ferrari. You're going to love it. It's a great film, and uh, and it's been a pleasure to talk about it. Again, stories come into our lives in so many great ways, and what a pleasure to chat with Ian Puente about Ford v. Ferrari. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to have Ian Puente on with us, and we'll be sure to have him back. Coming up, a story called The Lion Makers from Odds Bodkin. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. And up next, a story from the musical storyteller Odds Bodkin. This is called The Lion Makers. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. There were once four wealthy men from India, Brahmins. had studied all their lives and were filled with knowledge. Well, the fourth Brahmin, well, he had common sense. One day, the four friends were seated and they decided to go on a journey. The three who had all the learning said to one another, well, uh, <laughs> I think that we know so much now <laughs> that we should go out and find a king who will pay us a fortune for what we have learned. <laughs> and the second one said, Oh, yes, indeed. We are sort of very, 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 very wise. We must go out and, uh, and sell our wisdom to the highest bidder. And the third said, That's right. <laughs> we know so very much now. <laughs> Oh, to the highest speed there goes our wisdom. <laughs> they looked, however, at their fourth friend, who only had common sense. <laughs> yes, but what do we do with him? <laughs> he knows nothing. <laughs> yes, it's true, he knows very little. Yes, what do we do with him? Let's not take him. <laughs> no, we should take him. Yes, we should take him. He might be helpful. And their friend looked at them and thanked them for bringing him along. <laughs> began their journey. Along the road they walked, and then they saw something in the field. What is that? Look there. Let us go see what it is, <laughs> so we know even more. <laughs> this way. The four Brahmins walked to it, and they discovered the skeleton of a great lion. A lion. Roar, roar, roar. <laughs> you know what we should do? Let's demonstrate all that we know. Let's bring it back to life. Yes, I think that is a good idea, but bring it back to life with all our learning. Why not? <laughs> Why not? The fourth Brahmin, the one who had common sense, looked at his friends and said, yeah, My friends, and <laughs> a very interesting idea. <laughs> uh, but but I, I caution you, uh, uh, this is a lion. Oh, 
<laughs> that does not matter. I will give it flesh and blood. <laughs> yes, I can do that. <laughs> yes, and I, I will, I will give it skin, new skin. Yes, new skin. Yes, and I, I will give it the breath of life. <laughs> the breath of life. Yes, <laughs> let's bring it back to life. Once again, their friend with common sense looked at them and said, uh, "My friends, <laughs> it's a lion. <laughs> it's a lion. You bring it back to life, it might jump up and eat you." Silly fellow! <laughs> Silly fellow! Let's get to work. At that point, well, their friend turned to them and said, "Well, my friends, <laughs> you'll forgive me. I hope if I climb this tree while you bring the lion back to life." Go ahead if you wish. Climb the tree if you wish. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Filippello. <laughs> the fourth Brahmin climbed the tree and watched as his three friends went to work. The first Brahmin added flesh and blood. The second added skin, and the third leaned over and breathed in the breath of life. Up rose the lion. It roared mightily at all of them, and then it promptly gobbled them up. Off it went, with a full tummy. Meanwhile, the Brahmin, who was up in the tree, waited a little while and, looking every which way, went home. So, it is said that a little bit of common sense. Is at least as good as a great deal of learning, and one should always remember never, ever, to make a lion. The Lion Makers, a story told for you by the musical storyteller Odds Bodkin. And up next, we've got a story called "The Silent Princess" about a young man who falls in love with a princess who never speaks. Will he be able to win her hand, and will they ever be able to converse with one another? This is "The Silent Princess" by Richard Martin here on the Appleseed. For my last tale. I'll take a story from old Baghdad. Now, once upon a time, in old Baghdad, there lived a sultan. A sultan who had one son, a young boy whose favourite toy was a golden ball, and that boy would throw the ball high in the air and catch it again. He'd throw it once more and watch the sun sparkle as it came down to his hand. One day, the young boy he was playing by the well, the place outside the town where the women came with their jars to fetch the water. He was playing with his golden ball when he saw an old woman walking towards the well to fetch some water. She had a jar on her shoulder. And the young boy, as young boys sometimes do, he just took that ball and he threw it at the old woman, and her jar smashed into a hundred pieces on the ground. She saw who had thrown the ball. She turned to him, "You, for that, I curse you. May you fall in love with a silent princess." 
Now, the young boy, as young boys often don't, he thought no more of these words. He thought no more of these words, that is, until he grew up a little and his heart turned to things of love. And then he remembered the words the old woman had said. The silent princess. The silent princess. Who is the silent princess? Where does she live? Why is she silent? And how beautiful is she? And so it was. As it often is when love gets hold. He could think of nothing but the silent princess. In the end, in the end, he just took to his bed and did not want to drink or eat. At last, his father heard and came to see what was the matter with his son. And then it was that the boy did as young boys sometimes do. He told his father all that had happened. Oh, my boy, I do not know anything about the silent princess, neither who she is nor where you could find her. But I'll tell you one thing. Tomorrow, do not stay here. Tomorrow, get out of this bed. Tomorrow, put on your strongest shoes, take your warmest cloak and go out into the world. And if fortune will have you meet the silent princess, then meet her you shall. And so that is what the young boy did. The next day he put on his warmest cloak. He put on his strongest shoes. He set out down the road into the wide, wide world. But indeed, whoever he asked, wherever he looked, he could find nothing about the silent princess. But still he walked on and on and the weeks turned to months and the months turned to a year. A year and a day it was when he came to the foot of a great mountain. And when he came there, he met an old man. When he asked that old man the question, he asked everyone, can you tell me where I can find the silent princess? The old man said yes. I can, for she lives at the top of this mountain in a castle with her father, the king. Can you tell me the quickest way to get there? I can. It's straight up this road. And this road is the quickest way for you to lose your head. For she has sworn she shall never speak until she meets a man who can make her speak. But anyone who tries and fails, his head will be cut off at dawn. But a young man, a young man who wants to follow the love in his heart, will he hear of danger? Of course not. And the young man set off straight up that road as fast as his feet would carry him. He came to the castle, he knocked on the gate... It was the king himself who opened. Another young man come to lose his head. 
Look at the ground beneath your feet, white with the skulls of others who have tried and failed. Young man, keep your head and return now. What use is my head when I have already lost my heart? No, take me to your daughter, the princess. So the king called for a servant. Take this young man to the silent princess. Take this young man to the silent princess and stay there as a witness. For if she does not speak, he shall be beheaded at dawn. The servant took the young man to the room where the silent princess sat on a great cushion. She covered with her seven veils. The young man did not say a word. He just drew up a cushion and he sat down. He stayed there. He sat there. And after a while, he looked at the servant. Hey, have you not got a story to tell? You know, a tale to pass the time. I am not here to speak. I am here as a witness. Uh, Well, in, in that case, I'll tell us a story. Once upon a time, there were three young men, three friends, and they each loved the same young woman. Now, the young woman could not decide which one of them to marry. So she gave them a task. She said they should all go out into the world. And the one who did the most, that one, she would marry. The three young men agreed. And as friends, off they went together. The first young man, now, he did much. He learned the secret of sight. And he was able to see to the ends of the world. The second young man, why, he learned the secret of flight. He had a magic carpet which would fly through the air as fast as fast. And the third young man, why, he too did much, for he learnt the secret of life, and anything which had died, he could make alive again. One day, the three friends were sitting together when the first looked to the ends of the world, looked to the house of the woman they loved, (gasps) cried, There, I see she is lying on her deathbed. Hurry, cried the second. We must fly there onto my magic carpet. And the three of them flew. But when they arrived, they met the young woman's father carrying the dead body to her grave. Do not bury her, cried the third. Let me work my magic art. And indeed he did. And the young woman was brought back to life. The three men were delighted they had saved her. But the three men each claimed that, of course, she should now marry him. For, said the first, it was my gift of sight which enabled us to know of her terrible predicament. No, cried the second, if it had not been for my magic carpet, what help would that have been? Ah, 
cried the third, without my art, she would now be in her grave. And as the young man, telling the story, said those words, why, he suddenly fell silent. The servant who'd been listening cried, but what happened? Who did she marry? Who did the woman belong to? I do not know. And I so long to know the answer to that question. Indeed, it's, it's a difficult one. I, I tell you what, tomorrow, when the king's ministers meet, we should ask them, because they are wise men, they will give us the answer. You forget. Tomorrow, I am to be beheaded at dawn. At this, the silent princess could remain silent no longer. Beneath her seven veils, she rose to her feet, fools. First, it is clear the young woman belongs to no man. But if she did choose to marry, of course, she would decide to marry the man who had given her life. And then she realised she'd been tricked into speaking. She sat down. Just as the door opened, the king came to lead the young man to his execution. But, 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 cried the servant, but, but, she spoke. She spoke? Yes. Uh, The king turned to his daughter, who silently showed with her fingers that it was not enough for the young man to make her speak once. He must make her speak three times if he was not to be beheaded. And so it was. (laughs) So it was the very next evening she was sitting there when the young man was brought back to her room. There she was, on her cushion, beneath her seven veils. The young man just drew up a cushion, sat down, did not say a word, until after a while he turned to the servant. Hey, have you not got a tale to tell? You know, a story to pass the time. I am not here to speak. I am here as a witness. Ah, Well, well, I'll tell you a story then. Once upon a time, there were three people. Now, this was a man and his wife and the coachman who was driving them through a large forest. Now, the forest was large and the day was short. And soon they found that they were overtaken by the night and they would have to spend... The dark night in the forest. Unfortunately, they were not alone, for there were robbers in the forest. Robbers who attacked, who stole the money. The robbers, although they spared the woman, beheaded the two men and left. In the darkness, when the woman discovered what had happened... The only thing she could think of doing was, in her desperation, to take the two heads and to put them back on the bodies and to go onto her knees and pray to heaven for Allah to work a miracle. Well, if a miracle cannot happen in a story, where can it happen? (laughs) And so Allah heard that prayer and granted a miracle And as the morning sun rose, why, life returned to those bodies. But then it was 
the woman discovered what a terrible mistake she had made. Why, she had put the wrong head on the wrong body. The two heads immediately began to argue whose wife this really was. Why, she's mine, cried the head of the coachman, because there is more of her husband's body underneath here. No, 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 she's mine, cried the husband's head. No! And as the young man telling the story told those words, he fell silent. Well, who, who, who did the woman marry? Who did she belong to? I do not know. And I so long to know the answer to that question. True, it's a difficult one. When the king's ministers come, then we should, then we should ask them. You forget, I am to be beheaded at dawn. At this The silent princess could remain silent no longer, but stood to her feet beneath her seven veils. Fools, she cried. First, it is clear the young woman belonged to no man. But if she did choose to marry, she would choose the husband with the head of her husband, because in that head are all the memories of their previous life together. And she realised she'd been tricked again. (laughs) And that is why... The next evening, the young man was taken once again to the silent princess, who again sat in that room on her cushion beneath her seven veils. He drew up his cushion, he sat down, he did not say a word. Until, after a while, he turned to the servant, hey, have you not got a tale to tell? You know, a story to pass the time. I am not here to speak, I'm here as a witness. Ugh. Well, then... Then I'll tell you a story. Once upon a time, there were three men. Now, these three men, the first, he was a carver of wood. He took pieces of wood and with his knife, with his chisels, he carved beautiful things out of that wood. The second was a tailor who took cloth and made beautiful clothes. And the third, why, the third He was a man of learning, a man of prayer. Now, the three men were travelling together and they were travelling through a forest. And it must have been the forest from the story last night because it was big and the day was short. (laughs) Well, when they found they would have to spend the night in the forest, they knew the robbers from the story of last night were also there. So they decided they would keep watch. As they made a fire, two men went to sleep and the first man, the carver of wood, it was his turn to keep the first watch. And he sat there. He saw on the edge of the clearing in the firelight most beautiful piece of wood. It was large. And he picked it up and he looked at the beauty which was in that piece of wood. And he reached for his knife. He reached for his chisels. And all of the time of his watch, he worked and he worked on that piece of wood until he had carved the most beautiful young woman. But he was exhausted by his work. He had just enough strength to wake the next man and to fall asleep. The next man, the tailor, he suddenly noticed in the light of the fire a beautiful young woman. He saw the beauty 
and thought, with my art, I can make her lovelier still. He took his most beautiful bolt of cloth. He took his scissors. He took his needles. And he worked and he worked. He cut and he sewed. And he made the most beautiful dress. And he put that on the young woman. But by the end of his watch, she was exhausted, had just enough strength to wake the third man and fall asleep. The third man, the man of learning, the man of prayer, as he was sitting in the fire light, he suddenly saw standing there by a tree the beautiful figure of a woman, beautiful clothes. He reached out a hand, he touched her. Oh no. She was only a wooden woman. No. Such beauty must have life. Such beauty needed life. He went down on his knees and he prayed to heaven for Allah to work a miracle. And if a miracle cannot happen in a story, when can it happen? And so Allah heard his prayer and granted life to that wooden woman who was wooden no longer. And the man spent the rest of his watch teaching that woman to speak. And as the morning sun rose in the east, so it was the other two men, they woke up. They saw what miracle had happened. And of course, the three men all claimed that the woman should now marry him. And as the young man spoke those words, he fell silent. But, but uh, who did the woman marry? The, uh, who did she belong to? That I do not know. And I so long to know the answer to that question. But as the silent princess heard those words, she too, beneath her seven veils, slowly rose to her feet. First, It is clear that the young woman belongs to none of the men. But I'm sure if she chose to marry, she would choose as I have chosen, to marry the man who has given her life and has taught her to speak. The young man reached out his hand to her princess. I shall spend the rest of my life showing you, you have chosen wisely. And so it was, and so it was that the two married. Of course, they had many children. They were even able to find the old woman whose jar that golden ball had broken all those years ago. They brought her to the palace. She was the nurse to the children. Oh, and she told them many, many tales. And the tale... I have just told you, was always their favourite. (laughs) 
The Silent Princess, an old story told for you by Richard Martin. And we're going to wrap up today with a nostalgic song, a song filled with the nostalgia of remembering people that you love. This is from the storyteller and songwriter Susan Reed, and it's a song called Grandpa. As you listen to it, you might remember that those who are close to our hearts never really leave us. They live in our memories and in our stories about them. In fact, you can think about the people that are close to you, perhaps people that you've lost. You can keep their stories alive. Here's Grandpa from Susan Reed here on The Appleseed. The white pine calls to Grandpa, he's up before the dawn. His sweater flecked with sawdust, black fisherman's cap on. The cool night air turns a day, you can taste the morning dew. He strikes the light in the workshop, there's sanding work to do. With his hands, his chisel, with his knife, he as he listens to the story in the wood Benches to be mended Chairs tightened, glued and pressed Toy boats for great-grandchildren They too have their requests But all the while he hears the white Set free the shape of a maiden Before too long With his hands, his chisel With his knife, he whittles As he listens to the story in the wood When we walk in the forest Some see berries, some see bees Branches to climb, light streaming through Cedar in the air From seedling to great oak There's a sculpture in there With his hands, his chisel With his knife, he whittles As he listens to the story in the Some see berries, some see bees. Brand 
branches to climb, light streaming through the trees. Grandpa knots the elm grove, smells cedar in the air. From seedling to great oak, there's a sculpture in there. With his hands, his chisel, with his knife, he whittles as he listens to the story. With his knife, he whittles as he listens to the story in the woods. Susan Reed with Grandpa here on the Apple Seed. What a nice way to close out this hour of the Apple Seed. We hope you'll join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There are more than 2,000 episodes of the Apple Seed waiting for you there. And in addition to that, many episodes of the show, we call them Apple Seed Extras. Just a single story long, just a few minutes, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. It's been a great hour. We hope you'll join us again. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to have you with us on the Apple Seed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.